This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, the host of the Remnant Podcast. We have in the studio today uh, a good old friend of mine, a colleague for the time being at National Review. Are you a senior writer? Senior writer, National Review Online. Okay. These are Jesuitical distinctions these days. Yes. And uh, you are the – oh, I'm sorry. You are Michael Brendan Doherty. Welcome. Welcome. And you have a new book out, My Father Left Me Ireland. An American Son's Search for Home. Now, I have, I have some, um, I'm going to press you on various things in a little bit. But first of all, let me just say it is a, it is a lovely book. And I mean that in not, in not a condescending way, like, oh, those are lovely shoes or something, right? (laughs) It's, it's, it's a lovely book in that it is, is clearly written from a perspective of love, of a search for love, trying to put meaning into love. And one of the things that makes it a little bit of a challenge for us, which we were just saying off mic, is that, Part of the conceit of it, again, I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, part of the idea of it is to show rather than tell. Yeah. So it's very evocative. You have to sort of draw meaning out of it rather than have you hit over the head with it. But before I keep giving any more liner notes or cliff notes for this thing, why don't you actually tell us what the book's about? So, uh, yeah, thank you, Jonah. My Father Left Me Ireland. I like to say it's a book about the connection between homes and the homeland within which they sit. So or Broken Homes and Broken Homelands. And so it's written as a series of letters to my father and written as I was becoming a father. And in many ways, it's the most kind of universal story of all, right? It's about how having children changes our attitudes to our parents and what they gave us. And it's a common story in a way of growing up in a home, leaving that sense of home, and then finding it again. The twist, I suppose, is that I was raised in a fatherless home. And my father was in Ireland throughout my childhood. And I was raised in New Jersey. And my mother, heartbroken both for me and for herself in this situation, turned to Irish culture and Irish nationalism. She was Irish-American. My father's Irish. And, you know, filled my kind of young life and nursery with songs and stories and artifacts of Ireland and even the politics of Irish nationalism as they existed in New York in the 1980s. The book describes, in a sense, how these things started to, even when I wasn't aware that they were doing this, started to bind my emotions 
and imagination to this to this country that I wasn't actually in. Uh, and then I, I kind of go on this journey of, I, I talk about becoming a teenager in the 1990s and how the education system I was in and the kind of peers I was put within tended to derationalize this idea of a nation and, you know, even liberate me from it uh, because it found these ideas kind of dangerous and oppressive. Uh, you know, and I refer to how this kind of education tried to turn me into one of Nietzsche's last man, a <laughs> consumer, you know, who's obsessed with health and safety and status. But it's also a book about how, as I was becoming a father, I, I found I was doing the same things my mother did, which was getting back to these roots. Because having children has a way of turning a last man into the previous man, mm -hmm. um, quite literally. And it helps you to recover this capacity of uh, connecting with your history. And so really the book is a, a romance of fatherhood and nation. And it's, you know, if a literary critic was looking at it as a work of fiction, he would say it's it's literally structured like a romance where I'm narrating the story of my father and I um, both longing for each other uh, and missing each other and miscommunicating until late in the book. <laughs> uh, I won't spoil it too much. The big reveal. So it's funny, you're a, not quite sui generis, but you're a idiosyncratic champion of nationalism. Yeah. But not of the nationalism that almost anybody's actually talking about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so why don't you just sort of, you know, give your version of, of nationalism, why you were drawn to it, you know, in a uh, – as a source of meaning from afar. Um, yeah. But also what it means what, – what today you think nationalism – should be understood as. Yeah. So, you know, I've said in columns that nationalism is the politics of nationalism are a kind of irritated form of national loyalty. They're like when normally national loyalty is kind of a given. It's, um, you know, it's this way your, your affections and your impulses are bound up with your uh, country and it's the way that neighbors live together in peace under in a shared territory and share laws. Uh, but that when my idea of nationalism is that when that common inheritance or that common treasury is threatened in some way, that impulse, which is very deep and and can be very passionate, uh, even if most of the time it's it's pacific in nature, uh, suddenly erupts and you have this irritated nationalist movement that comes out of it. Um, that tries to recover um, and restore that sense of national loyalty. Now, I mean, that's can be very divisive in democracies, and it has been, and it will continue to be. But it's also something that runs counter, and the and the the book, in a way, contrasts the the era I grew up in and the kind of came of age in, in the nineteen nineties, where we had this kind of idea of, well, nations are dissolving, history is ending in a, in a kind of way, conflict is going to be at the edges of the world, but it's it's gradually going away. And all this nationalism stuff is just dangerous. And what I found, I remembered from my youth was that nationalism, as I knew it, was also, it was, it was certainly dangerous. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the 1980s in New York, you know, when you're putting money into flat caps for the widows and orphans of West Belfast, you know, you know what that money is really going for. Um, although in reality, it's probably being 
completely gobbled up by Whitey Bulger before it ever gets <laughs> to Belfast. But, uh, you know, I knew nationalism was dangerous, but it was also um, something that could inspire real self-sacrifice. And uh, what I connect in the book is that there's um, a way in which our attempt to, uh, you know, liberate ourselves from all the taboos, all, you know, all religion, all the claims of nationality also liberates you in a way to abandon your family and, and abandon all uh, kind of civil society along with it uh, if it runs counter to your immediate self-interest. And nationalism is a way of calling you back and it it can do so. And I, and I looked at these Irish nationalists from 100 years ago and I saw their capacity to imagine a better future for their country and it included self-sacrifice on behalf for the future, which in a way felt very countercultural and dangerous to me and uh, exciting. So, yeah, I, I kind of wanted to present this as the imaginative world I've, I've kind of operated in and show how it works. Um, and in many ways, it's 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 pre-political, right? Like, you know, an academic would look at the book and say, oh, you know, you're what you're really presenting here is kind of Cicero's idea of piety before the past mm -hmm. and thankfulness for it. But so, and this is not something else we were saying off mic. It's like, it is not, it's not the kind of book that makes itself vulnerable to the hyper-rational critique because you were simply laying bare your own emotional states. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, and, and it, uh, there is no authority I can appeal to that is higher than your own testimony about your own emotional states. Right, right yeah, yeah. Um, but, okay, so, but, right, so the neighborhood that you were living in, it was mostly Irish and Italians, right? Yeah, in Bloomfield, New Jersey, it was, it was, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've joked my conception of America when I was a kid was like, well, there's uh, Irish people, Italian people, and Jews, here and then and um there's blacks in newark new jersey and then somewhere down south there are baptists right. and like that's what america is yeah. um and it's natural that baptists should be down south because it's hotter it's closer to hell um <laughs> you know um so they're, they're they're getting ready um but uh yeah so but my, i guess what i'm getting at though is that Part of the sustenance that you drew from, so the spiritual sustenance or the, the sustenance of meaning, for one yeah, yeah, right? that you because you were always a good Catholic during all of this too. Well, I, I, I mean, you were always a Catholic. Yeah, yeah, I was. <laughs> I was basically a Catholic throughout, uh, with a little, you know, detour in, in high school age into or, Hinduism. Well, a little bit of a dabble in, in evangelical Protestantism uh -huh. and uh, and atheism, but uh -huh. like every twelve year old is atheist, sure. so that's fine. Sort of why the golden age of science fiction is sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> um, and um, but my point is, my, or what I'm trying to get at though is that this was not an attempt to find, or was it, attempt to find meaning in in Irishism from the people actually around you, right? This is a little bit of your own private Idaho kind of thing. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, we were in the early in the '80s. You know, my mother would have been immersed a little bit more in. Uh, a community of Irish people uh, that were around, you know, we went to cultural festivals that were Irish cultural festivals in New Jersey and New York, where you'd have traditional music, dancing, language, etc. Uh, we went to like little retreat houses in rural New York, where you would try to learn and speak the Irish language, and you'd mostly fail and just 
drink Guinness and talk politics. And, you know, and of course we'd visit Ireland occasionally. Mm -hmm. And so all of that had a, had an effect on kind of binding my imagination and, um, you know, obviously the absence of my father, just knowing my father was overseas and, you know, I would see him every couple of years and, you know, throughout my childhood, there was always, you know, maybe we'll go there, maybe you'll, maybe I'll go there for summers or, right. or whatever. So it was always this live possibility of I'm actually going to be a part of this country in some way. And yeah, it just felt like in the neighborhood I grew up in, it felt like, you know, everyone had a something hyphen America. Mm. It was like you're there were Filipinos too, you know, yeah. Filipino Americans. But okay, so I guess you know, one of the things you talk about a lot is how you beat the I just you talk about a lot. One of the things that comes out is how you you basically beat the cliches about what it means to be fatherless, right? The the Oh yeah, yeah. The social pathologies that come from being fatherless, the 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 problems you get at school, the problems you have with your career, not getting an education. There are all these things that are associated with fatherlessness that you are an outlier of, right? Yeah. I mean, unless I was supposed to be president of the United States and, and this is my, <laughs> and this is my form of failure. Um, so, I, I, so part of what I'm getting at is, is for a long time, you know, I've gotten a lot of mileage as a lot of conservatives have out of the life of Julia stuff. Yeah. Right? yeah. And part of my argument has long been and with obvious thousand, truly millions of counterexamples, notwithstanding that you're it's you're somewhere in that cluster of counterexamples, but part of my argument has been that the and it's very much a Yuval Levin argument too is that as the state grows, the state actually encourages atomization. Yeah. Right, it's hostile to competing sources of authority, and. So in the Life of Julia cartoon, you have Julia, and at every stage of her life, the state is providing all of the things that the family used to provide. Um, right. Part of my argument has, has been, sort of via Robert Nisbet and others, is that, that we all have this innate desire for community, right? We're, yeah. Nisbet called the quest for community. It's the desire to be part of something, part of a group, part of a tribe, part of a family, part of a community, whatever you want to call it. And the pitch that sort of progressive technocratic government sells all of the time and that conservative technocratic government sometimes sells is this idea that the government can do that for you, that it can love you. Ooh, yeah. And so the example I always use is, is from the Democratic Convention in 2012 that opened with the line in this video, the government is the one thing we all belong to. Oh, right? And for people like us, that's super creepy. Yeah, yeah. But there are millions of people out there who hear something I can belong to because their communities are deracinated, their families are broken up. They are not having their their hunger for meaning and belonging satisfied from traditional outlets. They don't lose the hunger. They just look for it elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. And so one of the things I thought was sort of interesting is, is that you're growing up in a father's home. Clearly, your mother loved you, but there were obvious issues with your dad not being there. And instead of looking to the state, you were kind of looking to Ireland. To yeah, right. Yeah. Well, in a sense, yeah, it was like we... It, it it's an interesting thing, right? My grandparents, my my maternal grandparents, you know, I kind of say that the Irish and hyphen was sort of fading away, mm -hmm. and, and I kind of have this, you know, arch observation that my my grandmother sang this Bing Crosby tune to Ralu Ralu, which is <laughs> an Irish lullaby that was written in Detroit, and uh, <laughs> you know, so there was this kind of kitschy element to their identity, and then my mother. Really, because she fell in love with an Irishman and and had and also had this Irish American identity, threw herself into this in the nineteen eighties, 
And yeah, you know, I never would have thought at the time, however, that I was looking to the Irish state or something. No, not not the state, but to Ireland, right? But but to the to the nation, to the the idea of the nation. And there was, you know, when you're sitting as a young kid in Queens at someone's house, and you're sitting in that house because they're they're Irish. And they just came in off the boat. They've emigrated because Ireland in the 80s was going through a really rough time. And you just feel this – you're there because someone else is Irish and you know them and they want you to meet this person and incorporate this person into this existing community of support. That definitely seemed to me as in retrospect like this is a source of strength mm-hmm. and stability and meaning that allows us to start caring for each other and um and supporting each other uh you know not every project we were involved in necessarily was to the good um but you know, there's kind of a funny disjuncture between you know my mother would have been very supportive of like we want to wring concessions from the british government about mm-hmm. northern ireland whereas my father living in ireland had a bit more of a realistic view of right. of of the the troubles than irish americans did well, so, but this is this is one of the things I wanted to get to, which is that there's a long history of – it's a very common thing. And I wasn't saying that you were married to Irish statism. Right? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, of course. But my point is, is that – Who could be? <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that – nor do I think that the people who are persuadable from – with the phrase government is the one thing we all belong to, nor do I think that they're actually – really excited about specific technocratic policy proposals. It's more of being caught up in an idea, yeah. you know, cause larger than yourself, as the cliche goes, right? Yeah. And that gives you a source of meaning. And that's one of the things that identity does, is it gives you meaning exterior to your own accomplishments or your own positions. It makes you part of a greater chain of being, yeah. right? And so one of the problems I've always had... So I'll just lay my cards on the table. It's interesting. You're an advocate of benign nationalism for want of a different phrase and you're sort of semi-associated with that the book is sort of being written up a little bit as a thing about national identity and nationalism and all the rest and yet the reality of the book is very much in keeping with with sort of my own view of things which is that a more fulfilling and happy life is one with staggered identities yeah and different identities you read the book and it turns out no no you're not defining yourself as an irish dude you're defining yourself as a man or a boy, uh, depending on the point in the book, um, who is trying to fill out the portfolio of his soul in a certain yeah, way. Yeah. Right? And when you become a father, all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, being a dad is this shockingly meaningful thing. And yeah. this is something I always try to tell people is that – you really can divide the world into people who have kids and people who don't have kids because you really don't get it. You can get it intellectually and you can get it kind of emotionally if you grow up raising nephews and whatever, but there's just something different, that a switch that flips. When you have your own kid, you become so much more other-oriented in a way yeah. that, you know, and that's why the the big leap is from zero to one, not not from four to five or whatever. Right, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, those are logistical problems, but the metaphysical switch is from zero to one. And... And so, you know, I'm partial. I don't think you are. I'm partial to to Orwell's essay, Notes on Nationalism. Yeah, yeah. And I've often argued, and people have really gotten mad at me about it, and I never understood why, that what he was really doing is 
It's one of the first guys to identify what would become known as identity politics, mm. which he was saying, he even admits in the beginning of the essay, he says, nationalism is the wrong word for what I'm describing, but it's the best word we've got right now. Right. And he goes on to say, it's this tendency to divide the universe between us and them to reduce people to abstract political units that tell you that tell you allegedly tell you everything that you need to know about them and it's a reductionist approach and the nationalism that you're talking the role nationalism plays in here isn't reductionist it's something else yeah i mean and what i'm looking for and i have criticisms of orwell's essay but um although i acknowledge it right i i I even acknowledge it in that observation I made before about my mother could more easily support, you know, the provisional IRA from mm -hmm. America than my father could, right? And he talks about this idea of transferred nationalism mm -hmm. where, you know, it's easier for G.K. Chesterton to romanticize French nationalism because uh, right. he's not familiar at all with the costs it imposes. But yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, one of the things I do in the book is, you know, and, and you would... You know, you have to read the book in a, in a sense to get this is I'm having children and have this impulse to connect with Ireland the way my mother did when she had me. I'm also doing this at a time exactly when Ireland is kind of commemorating the 100th anniversary of some of these momentous events in their own history, uh, namely the 1916 Easter Rebellion. And what was interesting to me at the time and, and is kind of throughout the book is I'm looking at the figures involved in that rebellion, uh, a historian, Owen McNeil, a school teacher, Patrick Pierce, you know, language activist, Eamon Kant, uh, labor activist, James Conley. And what I'm I contrast in the in the in the book is their view, uh, their worldview versus the worldview I was raised in and what their worldview, their view of what Ireland is or could become, it summons them to acts of sacrifice and to acts of, of also just toil and work. And so, um, you know, in some ways, uh, very attentive inside baseball readers will pick up that I kind of contrast Owen McNeil with Ta-Nehisi Coates. Mm -hmm. I don't name Tani Hisi Coates, uh, but there's some things I do with the language in the book that would indicate I'm talking about him. And, you know, I, I suggest that McNeil was facing a similar problem that Coates confronts in his book about this idea of confronting a history of shame and plunder and expropriation. And, you know, this, this historian McNeil, his response is to be a great historian of his nation, to, to take up all of this work of restoring a sense of dignity and self-knowledge to, to his nation and to work himself to the bone, right? It's, he doesn't indulge in despair. And then also potentially to, to take up arms in defense of his nation. And, um, you know, I contrast the way uh, Patrick Pierce conceived of education in his school, St. Enda's, which was like in many ways like a nationalist uh, school for boys with my own education. And I find that in, in effect, his, his view of education was directly contrary to mine and, and explicitly. So like he, he, he viewed the British education system as a way of making, of taming Ireland and making it, um, you know, in a sense, I draw the parallel where, 
the English education system in Ireland that Pierce detested made Irish history kind of absent for Irish people and Irish saints, Irish heroes, Irish legends. It absented them. And, and I kind of say that runs parallel to my own education, which sort of takes American history or any nation's history and rewrites it, revises it until it becomes entirely, hate, you know, a record of hatefulness mm. and uh, – The Howard Zinn version. Yeah, that yeah. we have to escape from and that, you know, we're just we're, – we're on the cusp of liberating ourselves from the this demonic history that um, informs us. So, yeah, I wanted to embrace I, – I, I found myself resonating deeply with their view and this idea of being summoned out of yourself to do something greater, to do something greater with your life. Uh, and I, you know, in a sense, I'm contrasting that with an education through the culture and through even my schooling that sort of said, no, you – that threw me back on myself and said, no, you're the measure of all meaning. You be true to yourself. Mm -hmm. You do this. And – and I talk about, in a sense, how alienating that actually is mm. and how that leaves you stranded and, in a sense, ill-equipped to meet the demands that life will place on you. Mm -hmm. um, now, it's something that comes across very much in the book. It also comes across – it's a big part of – one of the big arguments in the closing American mind, um, also in Patrick Deneen's stuff. I mean, there's a lot in Patrick Deneen's stuff that I agree with a lot. This You have to – sort of like – but, you know, Seymour Martin Lipset used to say, you cannot understand one country unless you understand two countries. Yeah. Because you need to compare it to something, right? You, right, yeah. You need to fill up a national sense of identity and who you are before you can understand someone else's, appreciate somebody else's sense of national identity. And what our education system sends, tends to do is just deracinate people entirely, tell them to cut them off from their roots, say your past is something that you need to sort of uh, atone for or forget. Um, yeah, escape from. Escape so. from, right. And, you know, it, it, it's funny. I kept thinking when I was reading the book, you know, Max Weber had that famous line where he says, the, how does it go? Um, the, the, central, the, the central fact of our time is the disenchantment of the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And it looks to me like, like a big chunk of what you're trying to do, and which is what people like, um, oh, what's his name? quote him all the time in my book. Um, Ernest Gellner. Thank you, Jack. Uh, Ernest Gellner calls nationalism a re-enchantment creed, right? That right. coming out of the Enlightenment, everything gets disenchanted, rationalized, scrubbed down, sanitary. It's all about dollars and cents or machine thinking, um, technocratic, and our minds want us to live in a more magical world. And so we look for re-enchantment creeds mm. that that give us that sense. And some of them are healthy. Some of them are unhealthy. But Yeah. You know. I mean, I would resist. I, I worry that re-enchantment creeds is another way of derationalizing them and saying, like, we're delusional. And, and I try to – I mean, the book, in a sense, is a protest against the modern concept uh, – like I go after what I call the wonks mm -hmm. conception of the world where, you know, in a sense, I say the wonk and I'm being I'm deliberately overstating in the book. But I say the wonk looks at, at a nation and says, OK, this is a pretty problematic thing, but it's a, a useful administrative unit. And right. if I can capture it, I can do this technical work on society, which I measure in totally utilitarian terms. And 
you know, in a sense, I, I, I am accusing this world I grew up in of letting that style of thinking not only colonize our politics, but even colonize the other areas of life where we find ourselves stupidly babbling about fatherhood. Like a father is like the chief wonk of the family. Like right. instead of paterfamilias, he is like, oh, okay, read to your kid. You know, if you read to your kid, he'll get a better mortgage rate. Okay, now cuddle with your kid because right. he'll be more sociable. As if fatherhood were just about passing on material advantage and middle middle class livelihood, and then in a sense, I'm I'm pointing to myself and saying like, well, I achieved all that anyway without a father, mm-hmm. and yet I still long for this relationship in my life. And similarly, like a nation can't be reduced down to just okay, well. Being Irish means that you are – you fall 13th on the UN index right. of nations for gender equality and you fall – or they're number four now or some ridiculously high stat. Um, you know, that there's some other – there are aspects of human life that aren't reducible in this way to just like utilitarian metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Um, sure. I am um... – First of all, I'm 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 very sympathetic to it. I, I mean, to your position on all these things. I I have a, and since you're a baseball guy and I'm not, but um, I pissed off a lot of friends of mine when I would write on the corner about how I never wanted the curse of the Bambino to be lifted because I just I like I like curses. I mean, I really do. I like right, you long, like the idea. Like like someone made a mistake five generations ago, and our society is now built up around the idea that. They screwed up and it will never – I just I like these weird little mystical things in our lives. I think they're cool. And I, to me, it's disenchantment when they go away. And right, yeah, yeah. Because it takes a long time to build them up in the first place to have this meaning in our culture. And then when they go away, it's like, oh, so it really just – it sabermetrics destroys everything. You know? Right, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And um, so I'm very sympathetic to all that. I was On the flip side though. Oh, in some ways, right, like in some ways this happened with Irish nationalism, right, is that – you know, as Ireland started achieving more and more of its independence, you know, its poet said, okay, now romantic Ireland is dead, right? Like, right. In a sense, the romance was nursing this dream that was unrealizable. Right. And, well, but there's so many cultures are like the Harlem Renaissance, right? There were so many things that came from an evil segregation that the people who were segregated, the, you know, Jews came up with all sorts of awesome stuff when they were being mistreated <laughs> yeah, yeah. because suffering is, you know, there's a, there is that thing about suffering being good for the soul. It forms co- social cohesion. It forms this sort of micro-nationalism sense of community that you're talking about. And then all of a sudden when you're liberated, you're like, now what do I do with myself? And all of a sudden, instead of the social solidarity, you're looking towards, now I just got to go to work, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. it becomes much more bourgeois and much less romantic. At the same time, that is not an argument for causing more suffering in the world right right yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> and yeah. but so on the on the thing about fathers i i agree with you entirely that family is this you know i mean i'm not gonna say corpus mysticum but it's this neat unique and i talk about the, Mi- the hayekian microcosm all of the time that the family works on irrational rules that are pre-political pre-democratic you know um as a friend of mine likes to say in his family uh you know, his family is a dictatorship and he's the dick, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and at the same time, I'm very sympathetic to – or I have my sympathies for what you're dismissing as the rationalization of, of wonkishness. Irving Kristol, who was a hero of mine, 
always used to, I shouldn't say always, I've heard, I had heard him say that one of the things that neoconservatism was good for was that by introducing sociology and social science into conservatism, it helped prove that most of the things your grandmother used to say were right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and in a, in a journalistic culture where you have, where you tell people, Hey, look, kids don't just go take care of themselves that it, you have to have some investment. You have to make, you know, I, I, I often tell people qu uh, quality time is bullshit, right? That it's quantity time. You need to be around your kids because you don't know when special moments come and you don't know oh, what yeah, they're going to yeah. remember and all that kind of stuff. And, Telling people, hey, look, I know everyone's busy. Every, you have all these things. Um, but these kids aren't self-cleaning and self-sustaining. There's some things that your parents did for you that had real value. And explaining to them that there is a practical value to it is not the end of the world. And I don't think anybody that needs to be told that their kid will have a better shot at getting into Harvard if they read to them when they're kids is probably a pretty crappy, crappy parent already, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it could, at the margins, tell parents err on the side of reading to them more or don't write off these little things because they aren't little things. No, it's no, that's all true. And uh, listen, some of the listen, some of the wonk anti wonkism of the book is a little bit of me fighting for a corner of saying, okay, uh, there, you know, there's some overstatement there because I'm fighting for writers in the, in the life of a Republic like the America or Ireland that um, social science isn't the only sure. uh, qualification for getting in. Because frankly, uh, you know, I, I think people that are informed by history, by literature, or by I, religion I agree entirely. still have something to contribute. And I worry, though, that like there's been a, you know, even if you look at if you look at all the public interest magazines, right, even National Review is much wonkier now mm -hmm. than it was in the 70s or 60s. That's uh, true, and um, and some of that is is I'll grant a total bonus, but I, you know, in a sense, like I'm fighting for my corner, and uh, and not only my own corner, but the you know, plenty of other writers who want to speak into the life of their nation uh, from a position informed by something other than social science. Yeah. No, I'm so 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 yeah, like I I I definitely kind of bring the thunder and fire for. Mm -hmm. Uh, for the wonks in the book, but I do have, you know, I, I invoke, um, you know, just like I evoke Coates in one chapter, I am evoking, you know, Francis Fukuyama's mm -hmm. book, the end of history and the last man in, in the book as well. And first of all, you know, the book is one of the most misunderstood books in the last 40 years. The Fukuyama book. Yeah. Fukuyama yeah. Yeah. I agree. Book. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people from, my side of the conservative world kind of either never read it or never really engaged with it and thought it was like some post-Cold War triumphalist right. book that, you know, a mandate for neoconservative foreign policy. But it's not. It's actually a brilliant book that's much more discomforting than that. And, you know, it's about this idea of the triumph of liberal, liberal democracy and the emergence of Nietzsche's last men at the end of it. And I, I want to just quote a little bit from it here. Because, sure. like... To give the body to this. Uh, so it's he's Fukuyama's talking in the latter part of the book about the kind of citizens that liberal democracies create. He said, um, 
uh, liberal democracies, quote, do not tell their citizens how they should live or what will make them happy, virtuous, or great. Instead, they cultivate the virtue of toleration, which becomes the chief virtue in democratic societies. And if men are unable to affirm that any particular way of life is superior to another, they will fall back on the affirmation of life itself, that is, the body, its needs, its fears. While not all souls may be equally virtuous or talented, all bodies can suffer. Hence, democratic societies will tend to be compassionate and raise to the first order of concern the question of preventing the body from suffering. It's not an accident that people in democratic societies are preoccupied with material gain and live in an economic world devoted to the satisfaction of the myriad small needs of the body. And he, he goes on to talk about how, like, in a sense, even more, our moral reasoning can become corrupted because it, if if equality and toleration are the highest virtues, it becomes much harder to have moral arguments because you're saying someone devoted to another moral good may be uh, unequal to your you, and right? The moral good you're pursuing. You know, and he said, you know, and he gives an example. In America, we feel entitled to criticize another person's smoking habits, but not his or her religious or moral behavior. And that is kind of like the formation I was trying to describe in this book that I was given through the culture, mm -hmm. through its pop culture, through um, my schooling. And it's a formation that I think what I'm trying to imply in some ways in the book, and like I said, this is done almost by implication, is that the last man that... Fukuyama's describing here is which is very much Nietzsche's last man. Yeah, Nietzsche's right. last man isn't just morally kind of shallow and self-obsessed. I'm implying also he's fundamentally barren, mm -hmm. right? So that this attempt to liberate yourself from all the nasties of the past, which in re reality becomes an attempt to just blacken everything in the past, mm -hmm. ends up cutting you off also from the future, mm -hmm. right? Not only because the future will then pour the same obloquy on you and say everything that you did and everything that you lived and believed was worthless, but also because it just demotivates you from doing the thing, creating children, which right. is hard work and right. requires sacrifice and a, and a willingness to suffer that I think our society makes us terrified of. And so, you know, the book is about me becoming a father and I have this little – my little daughter in my lap and I start like thinking, oh, sing to her my – the songs my mother sang and these kind of Irish nationalist ballads. And then I start reading uh, Patrick Pierce and others and, you know, he privileges sacrifice. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, in some ways that was um, what people hate about him in modern Ireland, right? Because – the critique of Pierce and, and these guys in Ireland became, well, you created this mandate for endless war against Britain. Mm. That, uh, and that, um, I mean, Owen McNeil even talked about uh, the hunger strikers in uh, the 1920s. And, you know, he said, uh, it's not the country who, inf who uh, inflicts the most pain, it's those who suffer the most that will win in the win in a conflict mm -hmm. those willing to suffer the most now th i believe that can be taken to extremes but i think we're we're on the opposite end of the pendulum where uh this attempt at liberation for ourselves personally has ended up disconnecting us and leaving us marooned both from our history which can be this source of comfort consolation and mm -hmm. this repository of our loves and can give us a conscience uh, and pass on to us the, the valuable things in our tradition. But then also from 
the future. And, you know, my implication is that, uh, you know, um, having children as children as um, something uh, inviolate um, will change us. And actually, actually let me read. I want to read one more thing and then I'll let uh, I want you to comment. So this is uh, Pierce's essay, Ghosts. And he's talking about the previous generation uh, in Ireland. And he says that there's there's nothing more terrible in Irish history than the failure of the last generations. Other generations have failed in Ireland, but they have failed nobly or failing ignobly. Some man among them has redeemed them from infamy by the splendor of his protest. But the failure of the last generation has been mean and shameful, and no man has arisen from it to say or do a splendid thing in virtue of which it shall be forgiven. The whole episode is squalid. It will remain the one sickening chapter in a story which, gallant or sorrowful, has everywhere else some exaltation of pride. And he kind of continues this condemnation of his previous generation, saying they're bankrupt in policy, bankrupt in credit. And he says, One finds oneself wondering what sin these men have been guilty of that so great a shame should come upon them. Is it that they punish uh, that they are punished with loss of manhood because in their youth they committed a crime against manhood? Even had the men themselves been less base, their failure would have been inevitable. When one thinks over the matter for a little time, one sees that they have built upon an untruth. They have conceived of nationality as a material thing, whereas it, whereas it is a spiritual thing. They have made the same mistake that a man would make if he were to forget that he has an immortal soul. They have not recognized in their people the image and likeness of God. Hence, the nation to them is not all holy, a thing inviolate and inviolable, a thing a man dare not sell or dishonor on pain of eternal perdition. They have thought of nationality as a thing to be negotiated about, as men negotiate about a tariff or about a trade route, rather than as an immediate jewel to be preserved at all peril, a thing so sacred that it may not be brought into the marketplaces at all or spoken of where men traffic." Now, okay, one, he's a pretty gorgeous writer, mm -hmm. but he's, he's urging himself in his own writing, I, I tend to think, to do something that a kind of dandy school teacher and intellectual normally wouldn't do, which is pick up a gun and start fighting mm -hmm. in, a, in a rebellion. But the contrast between the kind of man that Pierce Prize is, is someone who is willing to die for his nation is very different from the last man mm -hmm. that uh, Nietzsche is describing. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm implying that uh, a nation, the conscience of our nation will be returned to us when we invest in and welcome in uh, posterity again. Yeah. And my worry is that like we have a, uh, uh, we're creating a culture in which, one, we're not having that many children, and two, a lot of the children we're having, fathers aren't around, mm -hmm. not actually investing in them, and and in a sense that fatherlessness, uh, both as a material fact and as um, a social reality for the children we do have, uh, primes them toward this um, almost vengeful attitude towards their past and towards their history. And so, yeah, and this book is an attempt to describe, okay, I had children and suddenly I found, you know, my home, 
my childhood home almost being rebuilt and, and a way to connect with my father, even though he was absent. Um, anyway, sorry, so, that's no, a no, long no, rant. No, no, it was good. It was good. Um, I, I, I enjoyed it. I, so I have, I have a bunch of things. First of all, maybe we can find the audio because I think I, I, I almost – I almost weep that it didn't happen in time for you to put it in the book, but there's this line from, or at least in your talking points when you go around on a book tour, Kamala Harris was on Morning Joe when she announced her candidacy, and someone asked some, you know, can we ever unite this country again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I've seen her now say it several different times, and she's said it in written form too. She said, oh, you know, we still, we are still connected I'm an optimist because we're we're connected by so much more. There's so much more that unites us than it divides us. And then she goes on this stream of consciousness where she says, you know, it's not just Republicans and Democrats who wake up in the middle of the night wondering if they're going to have a secure retirement. It's not just Republicans or Democrats who <laughs> yeah. worry about paying their student loans, right? Yeah, policy and, de- deliverables. Yeah, it's, it's policy deliverables. And then it's like worried that they're going to get sick. And, you know, she was she was describing a sense of a definition of social solidarity that is only one or two clicks above. We are all united by the fact that we're carbon based life forms. Right. And then yeah, it, it was, yeah, it was yeah. purely sanitized of any sort of notion of actual nationality, of culture and any of these things. And it's one of these things that drives me crazy about the way particular the left talks about national unity. They want national unity, but they're terrified of the word nationalism. And what yeah. they're synonymous terms. It's, it's sort of like my beef about socialism versus nationalism, which are very similar things in the economic realm, not in the sort of poetic yeah, can be, yeah, yeah, not in the poetic realm that you're sort of talking about, or the spiritual realm that you're talking about. So there's that. In reaction to the second thing, and it's a strong drought of romantic nationalism. Yeah, I, I I can't go there. I think it is absolutely imperative that that uh, that any nation, when pressed with a true existential threat of some kind or a, or even just a very serious threat should have the kind of fellow feeling that he's talking about to some extent, right? The idea of sacrificing yourself for others, sacrificing yourself for a cause, these things are important. Right. Like I have to – I like on some level under the correct circumstances, right, for a nation to uh, preserve itself into the future, I have to be willing or my children have to be willing to – kill and die for Bernie Sanders kids. Right. Or grandkids. And uh, this is know. one of the this is one of the great mistakes. It was really kind of fascinating that he was the one who made it. In Dinesh's book, uh Enemy at Home, which I thought I gave a very critical review of in the Claremont Review of Books ten years ago, and turns out it was one of the friendliest because this was back in a different time. But he basically made this argument that Americans should have uh we should the American conservatives should form an alliance with Muslim conservatives against our own left and the the people who are destroying our own culture Ooh. including like crazy imams in Egypt who were like chanting death to america kind of stuff and because they are standing for cultural orthodoxy and tradition and so are we and part of my argument was you know count me out in situations like this you really bring out the irish in me in the sense that <laughs> yeah. i can criticize my brother but if you're telling me that ted kennedy has to die for the good of allah then you got to go through me first, right? I mean, there there should be that sense so that yeah, yeah. intra-family Americans can have knockdown, drag-out fights, but there's something that unites us all. I agree with all of that. At the same time, I and I was just telling my daughter this the other day that you have to like look at there are lots of things that we as human beings extol as goods which are not necessarily good. Doesn't mean they're bad, but you know, I just wrote a 
G-File about this the other day, about unity, national unity. National unity is fine when national unity is required. Yeah. Um, unity in and of itself is neither good nor bad. Um, right. Unity is a for what? It's a you're, exactly unity. Like the fascism was was literally a cult of unity. It's a bundle of sticks around an act that acts that meant that's what the fascists what the fascists were, and it symbolized strength in numbers. And we have a genetic evolutionary compulsion to to favor unity. We think because it's a survival mechanism, but rape gangs are unified, right? The mafia is unified. That's what you know. That's what is the organizing principle of the mafia is to be unified. Unity in and of itself is like fire. It can be used constructively or destructively, and it depends what you want to use it for. Same thing with loyalty. And so what I don't like about the quote that you read is that I'm much more of a Chestertonian on this. Is like no man would say his country, you know, my country is always right. It's like saying my mother, you know, my, my, my country right or wrong is like saying my mother drunk or sober. Um, yeah. My con- and, this, and so this teases out, you know, this argument that happens a lot on – on our side of the fence when nationalism comes up about the differences between nationalism and patriotism. Um, Rich Lowry, our friend. Yeah. Handsome man, powerful man, um, editor of national review. Uh, he's working on a book about nationalism. Uh, he hates, maybe hates too strong a word. He finds inconvenient and sometimes questions the authenticity of the line often ascribed to William F. Buckley that Buckley said something along the lines of, um, I'm as patriotic as anybody. I rise on the 4th of July. I'll sing Yankee Doodle Dandy, yada, yada, yada. But there's not an ounce of nationalism in me. Mm. And Rich, who is in part because he's working on this book about nationalism, is somewhat invested in the idea that there really is no distinction between patriotism and nationalism. Uh-huh. And um, uh, I'm wondering where do you come down on the distinction between these two things? Because this is one of the things which causes people to talk way past each other yes. a lot. And, I, and, and Probably possibly caused you and Rich to talk past each other. Yeah, no, that's right. And, <laughs> and, and, and when, if Rich wants to define patriotism and nationalism as the same thing, I may disagree with him. But I'm perfectly willing to work with the terms that he's working with and say, okay, you're not making that distinction. I won't either for the purposes of this conversation. But I actually think there is a distinction there. I'm just wondering if you do. Um, I... <sighs> Um, yeah, as I was saying toward the beginning, I think I, I make this distinction of, um, I think of national loyalty as something somewhat unique to the West, um, somewhat part of our Christian and Judeo-Christian inheritance, even though that word is now, um, white supremacist. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, um. You and Ben Shapiro and other members of the alt-right just keep talking about that Judeo-Christian heritage. So I think the, you know, I think of national, I I talk about national loyalty is um, in good conditions would be the existing peace between neighbors and their their ability and willingness to share the national territory together and endeavor to live under the same laws, Um, right? We have territory, we we in the West, we especially prize territorial-based forms of loyalty and that'll be connected with language and culture in a way. Um, whereas like maybe an Islamic civilization, you have this, I think you would have this higher call of the Ummah that, that often supersedes um, right. your national loyalty. And it, it gives the kind of particular flavor of, you know, criticism that uh, Muftis and other uh, Islamic clerics offer to the Sultan or the, Right. Well, Muhammad Adrian says somewhere in the Quran, don't be one of these people who says, I am so-and-so of such a place. Yeah. Right. He wants you to be Muslim everywhere. But, you know, the Catholic Church 
kind of does some of that some, too, right? Somewhat, <laughs> although like there's kind of a theology in, in Christianity where the um, where God uh, judges both individuals and nations, and so mm-hmm. there's this idea of there's a providential concern for nations in the Bible that um, brings in the mysterium mm-hmm. uh, in the great mystery. Um, the good of the nation and the good of individual souls is not ultimately in in conflict. Um, the true good of a nation, not necessarily how a you know Mussolini would define the nation, mm-hmm. but um, so national loyalty is is this endeavor to live in a territory together with shared loyalty. And then my view is that nationalist politics arise in the presence of some arousal or irritation that touches on that deep, almost pre political passion. Um, and so nationalist politics um, come about in war uh, is the most obvious example. But they could also come about in uh, a, an ambition for new territory or an irredentist claim in you know Northern Ireland or manifest destiny in America involved nationalist passions. Or the maladministration of the Napoleonic regime in parts of Germany. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, it can come about in, in an irritation of um, – Political interference, right? I mean, you're seeing on the left, you're seeing this kind of splurge of anti-Russianism that's tinged with American nationalism because right. they think uh, Russia violated America's uh, independence in, in choosing its own president. Um, so where you get a big irritant to national loyalties. So, for instance, in Kiev, you have this in Ukraine, you have this big irritant in Moscow. And so you get lots of nationalism in the Ukraine and, and my idea is this is like a fever, which can be both either fatal or curative, mm-hmm. um, that nationalist politics will be um, fatal or curative uh, of, of the thing it's addressing. And my own view is that um, a conservative, as I am, who's attuned to this national aspect, in times of peace, he will attend to – he will tend to the the nation itself like – you would a garden, mm-hmm. you know, you wouldn't attack a garden, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you wouldn't say, Oh, I want to, um, do something a little different here. Let me like carpet bomb it with agent orange or something really <laughs> aggressive. Um, you would, uh, prune prudently. Mm-hmm. So, so that's kind of how I view, I view, um, nationalism is, is that there's a base level of national loyalty and you want to attend to that. Um, you know, in times of peace, contributions to the nation can be, are totally consonant with individual goods, right? Like Mark Twain's books are an amazing American achievement, but they weren't written to be like Americana exactly. Although many, although we have to say many, many novelists do have this idea in their head of like, I want to write the great uh, novel for my country. Um, So where does patriotism figure into all of this? um, Patriotism is, um, I I think of it as the, the, the sentiments that bind you to your country. Mm -hmm. I think of, of national loyalty as uh, something a little bit different. I think patriotism uh, in peace is, is probably no different um, than, uh, or it's admixed with national loyalty. So I, I don't think of nationalism as like a full philosophy. Mm-hmm. I think of nationalism as a, as a as like I said a fever, and it takes in hand philosophies to mm-hmm. achieve its purposes. So, you know, in one context, it may if it's trying to establish sovereignty and independence from an empire. If that empire is capitalist, 
nationalists will tend to go towards a communist uh, right. sponsor or something like that. Um, so nationalisms can be opportunistic. Uh, and I, I, I would want anyone who's looking at nationalism to um, acknowledge that. So, and, okay. But and so- then, and then, and then lastly, um, nationalism in, in my view, the, the nationalism we're seeing today is uh, born of two things. One, I think a kind of overweening uh a political orthodoxy that's that was attempted to be imposed through basically anti-democratic institutions, whether the EU in Europe or um, in the United States, I would say like a bipartisan consensus that was meant to to skirt public opinion mm-hmm. on certain issues like immigration or, or trade. And so I think there's this kind of nationalist impulse to restore the place of democracy. And I think most of the nationalism you see, the you know, People worry that there's this huge trend that's going to totally reorder our politics. I actually think it's just people are going to make an accommodation with it and then it will go away and, mm-hmm. and a different kind of politics will emerge. So, so yeah, I think that fever yeah, so, or it will break. So, I, I mean, it shouldn't surprise you. I'm much more sympathetic to your treatment of these things than I am to say riches. Um, you know, one, one, I think, useful illustration of the differences between nationalism and patriotism as you're talking about them is which I've talked about on this podcast before Thanksgiving is a truly nationalist holiday right yeah, yeah, yeah. it's it's yeah. thanks to god it's thanks for the food you have for your family yeah, it's connected to the land it's totally connected to the land um it's got a big christian thing to it right but it's also got this social solidarity thing even with the indians right and yeah 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 um, and it's a holiday that is established before the founding of the United States of America, it is this thankfulness for the providentialness of being in this place, yeah. right? And the Fourth of July, on the other hand, is a very patriotic holiday. You read texts; it's you're literally celebrating the signing of a document, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and what makes Fourth of July feel more nationalistic to some people is that there, as always happens with 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 these sorts of sentiments. Is that there's a little bit of an overlay of the military stuff in it, and yeah, the, the, and 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 so, but on the on the distinction between nationalism and patriotism, you know, I, I agree it can get blurry, and I certainly think that almost mo- that most, if not all, nationalists in America either are or think they are patriots. And most patriotic people in America have a healthier dose of nationalism than they are willing necessarily to always to concede. Yeah. But someone on Twitter pointed out to me the other day, um, in response to my thing with Rich Lowry, one way to think about it in the political realm is that nationalism is a force for trying to overcome any obstacles, right? And that's what you're talking about when you're talking about it'll pick up arguments of convenience to express itself um nationalism is 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 a tide that is looking for its sort of in a Nietzschean sense you know it's overcoming it wants to achieve something yeah yeah and it wants to delegitimize constraints on this irritated spirit that you're talking about yeah patriotism is a constraining force it's the kind of thing that says that even when your passions are high the best version of your of this country and its its traditions prevents you from doing certain things. And so the analogy I've used for years is that you know 
in the American political, one of the reasons why I don't like nationalism talk in politics, the way you're talking about it in terms of culture and tradition, I'm, I'm very much a traditionalist. I'm entirely with, I mean, I, I have become more Chestertonian over yeah, the yeah, years. Yeah. I've always loved his thing about how tradition is democracy for the dead. Yeah. That we owe a certain amount of fidelity and contractual obligation to the people who came before us because they wanted this country to be a certain kind of country and we need to at least sometimes the answer is no but you should always at least respect the request from the dead and so i'm very sympathetic to all that but in the american political tradition in politics when you talk about nationalism you're talking about the the moral legitimacy and sovereignty of the group and when you're talking about patriotism to me the patriot is the guy who stands up to the mob you know, when Calvin Coolidge says one with the law on his side is a majority, hmm. the our founding documents are all about individual rights and about protecting the freedom of conscience and the freedom of speech and all these kinds of things, even when the group is against them. And that's the way our system was set up. Whether you think I was a mistake or not right, yeah. is a different issue. And so for me, patriotism, yeah, again, in real life, there's an enormous amount of overlap between patriotism and nationalism. But all principles are understood at their testing point. And patriotism, it's very difficult for me to get to an understanding of patriotism that puts the demands of the group ahead of the demands of the individual mm. in a way that nationalism automatically does. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I, I'm not sure. Sometimes because sometimes nationalism bids you to do, you know, nationalist movements do stuff that um, the group, you know, so one of the things that's kind of interesting about the Easter Rising, which I talk about. Like William the, Wallace would be a nationalist, according to you. Right. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. So like one of the things that, that the people the Easter Rising did, right, was um, one of the things that's interesting about it is this is set in World War II. Ireland's great national ambition politically for 40 years had been a home rule parliament. We want to, you know, our own parliament within the United Kingdom to be in Dublin, restore our parliament. And the it's passed in 1912, but it has to overcome a check from the House of Lords. So it needs to wait three years and be passed the same way each time. While they're waiting to pass it, um, people are organizing against it extra constitutionally in Ulster and beyond. And then World War II breaks out. And the reaction of the British government to the outbreak of World War II is, oh, thank God. God, we can stop talking about Ireland. For, um, I mean, and I mean that really, like Asquith and others literally said stuff like this. Yeah. Like, you know, thank God for war in Europe because we can shut up about Ireland. And what happens is uh, 200,000 Irish men sign up and fight on the Western Front underneath the flag of the United Kingdom of uh, Ireland and Great Britain. And the, the Heroes of the Rising preserve this harder form of nationalism of like, we want to establish a, a separate politically separate sovereign indefeasible republic on the island of ireland and barely two thousand of them on this easter week in 1916 decide to make their uh mark and they know they're going to lose mm -hmm. and not only do they you know lose in a week you know after occupying the buildings the british rush over some troops um and in on the scale of the war it's actually a relatively small skirmish, but it is civil war breaking out. You know, they were cursed by the common people mm. of Dublin as traitors, murderers. They were uh, cursed as, you know, in the papers they were denounced as communists and senseless. And then gradually, though, people realized who they were and what their aims were. And then um, and they were executed one by one. British policy got very confused, trying to sometimes be very harsh in some aspects and then placating in others which 
actually tended to rile people mm-hmm. up. Um, so in some ways they responded to this by like rushing home rule forward and thus proving that violence gets you what you want. Right. While then also arresting thousands of people who weren't involved as sympathizers and putting them in jails where they radicalized each other. And what they were motivated, motivated by, and there's this moment on Easter Sunday where the initial plan to start the rising on Sunday of Easter has been botched by miscommunication and a countermanding order from from one of the uh, the people, the Irish volunteers. And Nora Connolly, uh, James Connolly's daughter, goes up to him while they're kind of deliberating what to do next and says, are we not going to fight, Daddy? And he says uh, – he turns to her and he says, uh, if we don't fight, we have to hope an earthquake opens up uh, below us to swallow us in our shame. <laughs> And their idea was they had to honor the tradition of Irish history by fighting, mm-hmm. that there hadn't been a rebellion in their lifetime. And they had to to hand on this tradition so that at some point Ireland will be free. And if we if we don't give up, we'll just be absorbed into it. So and in some way now, you know, you could make a just war argument and say, hey, you had no hope of real success. And, um, you know, therefore it's immoral. I would argue that it was just because um, already extra constitutional means had been used to subvert and now they're using their extra constitutional means to achieve their goal. And that, in fact, they did succeed in passing on this tradition and quickly achieved uh, things in for their nation that were thought unachievable, which is the establishment of an Irish state uh, in 1922 and eventually the establishment of a republic. The cost, of course, was the the partition of Ireland, which has been uh, horrible. Source of some controversy. A source of some controversy. <laughs> but then again, right, you get lots of nationalism in Northern Ireland on both sides. One side is called the nationalist side, but a unionist Protestant side and a, an Irish nationalist side because you have two communities of people divided by religion, sharing territory, but they have Different loyal, different national loyalties. One one set of people is loyal to an idea of a united Ireland or to Irish nationality, um, and one set is loyal to a, a a union with Northern Ireland and Great Britain, and it's part of their national identity. And one of the reasons it's so tough for them to live together, and why they have to have this really unique, imposed upon constitutional power sharing system, is because they don't agree that they live in the same nation, right? And, you know, in a sense, that's why national loyalty is so important to guard because when you find that the, these edge cases on the on the territories, they're they very violent. And um, so you want to attend – I believe conservatives should just want to attend to national uh, unity even in times of peace, even when there's not nationalist politics, that, um, that you want to att- attend to these things. Because my fear, of course, is that uh, if we if we managed – if progressives or or modern liberals managed to actually derationalize the nation what would come back is roaring loyalties of blood mm-hmm. and uh tribe or religion right. and and we and we tear apart the nation it's a, again not to wax chestertonian but you know when you tell people to stop believing in god yeah. not that they don't believe in anything it's the, it's not that they believe in nothing it's the believe in anything and if you tell people to stop believing that they actually live in a country called the United States of America, 
you are inviting all sorts of sectarian tribal identity politics yeah. affiliations to fill in the void. And I agree – look, I agree with all of that entirely that yeah. when you, you need healthy sources of meaning or unhealthy sources of meaning will invade. I also believe that nations are, are kind of um, – they're hardy animals in some ways, right? Like they they can die, right? There are there are nations that die. Our, most of the Native American nations are – are functionally dead. They've lost right. their language. They've lost their culture. Most of them are. Most of the nations in the Bible are. Gone. Most of the nations are gone. But many nations survive. They survive. You know, obviously the the paradigmatic one. You're, I can hear Yoram Hazani somewhere behind me. <laughs> you know, a nation can survive captivity. It can survive being incorporated into an empire, and then it can re- revive itself. And you know, you there are some na- nations, right? Like. Hungary, where the national story is like we survived the Turks, right. we survived the Austro-Hungarian Empire, we survived all this, right? And like the the history book that John Lukacs Lukacs uh, recommends is called like the Will to Survival or something like that. Yeah, but um, I mean, just to push back on that slightly, a lot of those places, you know, and this is part of my problem with the Hazoni and and Lowry emphasis on biblical nationalism as a concept. It the the biblical nations, very much like the American Indians you're talking about, very much like the Irish, very much like certainly the Hungarians, right? They're all supposed to be descendants of one Magyar or yeah, whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. And you're not so much talking about nations as you're talking about peoples. That there's a and yeah. and there's a distinction there that you know. And so, well, yeah, yeah. And so I, I get nations for nations as. Yeah, because sometimes people say nation when they mean people, and right. sometimes people say nation when they mean like we talk about the Kurdish nation, but they don't actually have a nation. actual community that has political borders. And... Right, and and that's why I've always thought that so much of Hazoni's and Rich's argument, if you were talking about nationism, right, countryism, just the idea of the political unit, the largest political units should be these nation states that come out of the Treaty of Westphalia, and that we shouldn't have one world government, or we shouldn't have pan-nationalism where we have, you know, like the EU, fine. But that's not what everyone means by nationalism. Yeah. I mean, so Hazoni and I, so I like Yoram a lot and, um, but he's approaching it from a geopolitical idea of how do you organize state? Like what's a great way to have the world organized, which is, okay, let's have self-governing independent nation states, uh, which is a li- I'm addressing a kind of different thing. No, I know you are. Thing. Right. Um, I, You're kind of talking about a people in some way. I most – I most – like my personal preferences, I agree with I, – I like Yoram's argument. As a Christian, as a Catholic, I think the inheritance of the West is always that we're going to – I mean I, I'm a kind of political fatalist, right? I, uh, I believe only uh, the kingdom of God will last forever and reign forever and all nations have – an expiry date, even if that might be the end of the world. But in the here and now, in in the temporal order, in the in the world as it exists, I think that the sway of history in the West is always going to be between empire and nation, and that these are just part of the 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 inheritance of Christian Christendom, and that when empires become dysfunctional, overweening, oppressive, and discredited. Nations will emerge from, reemerge from them, and then when nations become corrupt, lax, and uh, uh, reprobate in some way, they'll be absorbed into a stronger empire near nearby. Uh, like I, I just think that that I, as a matter of just describing history, I think that is what will happen. That process will destroy some nations, and 
and other nations will survive or emerge in different forms later. So I don't, I don't think there's like one eternal, like, I just don't believe I, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I don't believe that there's like a political program that is uh, applicable forever in history. No, I look at Right. Like uh, the, the, the ship, you know, the wind, the winds of history change and the ship will, will have to adjust to them. I'm a don't immunitize the eschaton guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. But, um, uh, but when I hear you talking about Ireland um, and um, when I hear you talking about the people saying one of the things that I retreat to is American exceptionalism, mm. which um, is another one of these phrases that yeah, no one agrees. Yeah, it just drives me crazy how people talk. About it. it used to be – I mean vast bodies of literature were written about American exceptionalism, which as, a, as a, an analytical or descriptive term, not – Sort of, it's not supposed to be chest thumping. There were things that came from American exceptionalism that were bad. America was always known as one of the most violent countries in the world because yeah. of our Harris. It's, it still is. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but 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 that was part of American exceptionalism too. Yeah, yeah, point. yeah. And um, we were more religious. You know, all the other developed nations were as they got more as they got richer, they got became less religious. We didn't for a long time, although that's starting to change. Yeah, I think that's true. And I would argue one of the reasons why it's starting to change is because um much like nationalism, religion is now becoming a marker for political or, or ideological yeah. orientation rather than something that is supposed to be transpartisan or nonpartisan or prepartisan. And um well one of the things this all right, I'll get myself in trouble here. The um you know, Trump had some of his his biggest support, right? Like his most rock ribbed supporters, uh, demographically would be unchurched or lightly churched evangelicals, right? And you know, when I saw that, and when I was looking at those numbers, and please, audience, Jonah, don't take this comparison <laughs> too far, but it reminded me of like Lutheran Prussia, which uh -huh. is like, um, oh man, the Lutherans going to come for you now? Yeah, yeah, but but like. <laughs> In many ways, like the 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 practice of Lutheran faith was waning among many people in in in, in that region of Prussia and then later Germany, but the sense of like we are still this like kind of nation within a nation, this like people set apart, um, you know, the salt of the earth, mm -hmm. was still strong, and it was you know it was a kind of a line into that was nationalism, right? mm -hmm. like a, a a way to tap into those passions and that. Uh, that imagination of um, – and that imagination also existed with demographic fear, right? Like mm -hmm. they feared being overwhelmed by Catholic Poles right. and other Catholic Slavs. Um, so, yeah, like I, I, I worry I see a similar thing happening among evangelicals that they're like losing their faith and then they're kind of giving the substitute faith of like – MAGA. Yeah, of, mm -hmm. of make America great again or – but they still have this – this sense of we are a peep are um, a people within the people. Uh, well, that's a, that's a big chunk of Michael Burley's stuff, right? Where he talks about how so many of the conflicts in the last two hundred years are really a continuation of the religious wars, um, yeah. just under different guys. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, this explains my hostility to Pete Buttigieg. He's <laughs> <laughs> basically like an Episcopalian. I'm ready to fight. Um, all right. Well, unfortunately, I actually have to cut this short because I have a column I got to put to bed. But um, everyone, I really, I cannot, I, I cannot recommend the book enough. It is not contra this conversation, notwithstanding 
um, one long tirade of name-checking um, various theoreticians of nationalism and whatnot. It is a very personal and 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 lovely and lovingly written um, memoir about one guy's you know experience with fatherhood and with um, fatherlessness. I think is the way to put it. Um, yeah. And thank you very much, Michael, for coming on. Oh, thanks so much for having me, John. It was great as always. Ring a ring a rosy. As the light declines, I'll remember Dublin City in the rare old times. Raised on songs and stories, heroes of renown, the passing tales and glories. That once was Dublin town The hallowed halls and houses The haunting children's rhymes That once was Dublin city In the rare old times Ring a ring a rosy As the start talking one two three four five six seven eight okay stop don't don't say that stupid ad again um i know where you're going i often will recite the old citrus hill select orange juice commercial Uh, jingle and and for some reason it triggers jack it doesn't trigger me i'm just annoyed by it um I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> you, don't to, you don't have to call me a snowflake. I didn't call you a snowflake. You just, yeah, you just said I was triggered by it. Yeah, that's, right. that's, you know, cry more. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, that's... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.